Welcome to Ipsa Dixit. My name is Matthew Bruckner. I'm an associate professor of law at Howard School of Law. My guest today is Kate Sobloski Ellengold, assistant professor and director of the Consumer Financial Transactions Clinic at UNC School of Law. Uh, we're here today to talk about the investment imperative, an article that Kate wrote that's forthcoming in the Houston Law Review. Kate, welcome to the show. We're delighted to have you. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be here. So I thought this was a fantastic article. I used it today in my uh, consumer law um, seminar to talk about, um, but I would love for you to just introduce it to the audience. You know, tell us what is your elevator pitch? What is the article about? Yeah, sure. So I mean, basically, this paper is kind of an exposition of our cultural belief or commitment um, to higher education as the key to social mobility um, in America, a belief that I think has been both kind of created and reinforced by higher education policymaking um, and the kind of related shift in that policymaking of thinking about higher education less like a public good and more like a private good that comes with all of the risk on the private individual. So um, I call that reliance or that commitment to this idea, the investment imperative, um, and this paper pays kind of um, attention to the effect of the investment imperative on consumer actions and behaviors. Um, so others have looked at higher education policy and student debt from kind of the supply side. Um, and my paper offers insight into the demand side. What is the con consumer thinking and how is the consumer affected? Um, and I basically argue that the investment imperative um, both drives and distorts um, consumers' decision-making about higher ed and how they're going to go ahead and finance their higher education, and that that um, distortion leaves consumers open to exploitation. Yeah, so that really resonated with uh, with me. I mean, you know, I feel like when I was a kid, my parents just said, "You're smart. You'll go to college." Uh, and um, I was like, "Sure, right? I'm I'm smart. I'll go to college." And without really thinking about uh, anything about the do with the financing, the return on investment, um, and that was something I feel like you really focused on a lot was that uh, that because students don't uh, think about uh, return on investment, they sometimes make uh, bad decisions for attendance. Um, uh, and you talked then a little bit about what 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 results from that. So can you talk a little bit more about the um, the debt cascade? Yeah. So um, I look at this disconnect that you just talked about. Right? You're smart. You go to college. Um, you don't think about how you're going to finance it. Um, and based on um, my experience representing consumers um, who have student debt, and my experience in this research project that I was involved in, where we interviewed. 65 borrowers, it became very clear that kind of the anecdotes about that out there, that people borrowed indiscriminately because higher ed was a must, right? It's an imperative um, that, that their decision to attend college was totally disconnected from their thoughts about the costs, the debt, um, the debt burden, what that means to have debt, whether they actually have debt or not. Um, and in my piece, I look at kind of two phenomena that result from this disconnect. So I talk about the um, ostrich effect, um, which is a term that I borrow from um, behavioral economics um, that says that the investment imperative um, makes us ignore the uh, 
problematic or um, scary things about financing higher ed through debt. Um, and that leaves us open to exploitation. And then also what I call the student debt cascade, um, where uh, we promise people that higher education is this key to social mobility and financial mobility. And then when the reality of people's post-college financial lives don't match the promise, especially because of the debt that they're holding, that that can lead to distress emotions like anger and shame and fear, which then can lead to avoidance of the debt, um, avoidance of dealing with the debt and of taking, um, taking advantage of legal rights with respect to the debt, which can lead to default. And then default on student debt has really horrible financial consequences. One of the things that came up uh, several times in our discussion in my class today was uh, about the um, this idea that the students aren't really thinking about return on investment and, you know, how do you get them to think about that? But something that came up uh, often in, in thinking about sort of potential solutions were um, the idea that, that some students are, um, you know, so certainly lots of students are, are going to school and borrowing and uh, working two or three jobs, but that some students are also going to college and sort of borrowing money to go on um, trips and uh, so and um, sort of live in sort of nice apartments. And so some of the students sort of were less sympathetic to the, to the notion that um, uh, that students are, some students are going to college and borrowing uh, indiscriminately, not just for an education, but for all of the associated cost of living. Uh, so I was wondering if you had any thoughts about um, um, that and how it relates maybe to the investment imperative. Yeah, well, so my initial um, reaction to that is I think that's something of a myth. I mean, certainly there are some individuals who fall into that category, um, but for the most part, um, the people who are struggling under the weight of their student debt um, in repayment are not people with $100,000 of student debt from their um, Harvard Law School um, degree. They are going to be able to pay that off. They're, they're folks who have um, $25,000, $30,000 worth of debt um, who maybe were um, recruited into a predatory institution and didn't get a degree that led to any realistic job prospects, or they had a financial crisis that made it such that they couldn't finish college. Um, and there's a lot of work that's being done, um, I would say, led primarily by Sarah Goldrick-Rabb at Temple University. She's a sociologist um, about what, what they call real college, like what's it really like for people in college? Um, and the looking at homelessness in higher education and food insecurity in higher education and the statistics um, are, are pretty startling on those numbers. Um, and so it's really, the, the student debt crisis is not really about um, fancy apartments and trips, but more about people who um, have to take on debt to attend college, and then because of the circumstances are unable to either take advantage of the opportunities at college or to finish college um, or go to a, an institution that leads them to quality employment. Um, and that, that is really more the story that we're seeing on the ground. 
Yeah, certainly uh, Dr. Uh, Goldrick Robb's work has been, uh, I think, really eye-opening um, and in talking with uh, colleagues both at Howard and other sort of local law schools, sort of, I feel like even in law school, um, lots of people are thinking about sort of food pantries and um, supporting um, students' basic needs in ways that is really very contrary to the, um, the um, concern expressed by some of my students, for example, that people are sort of living the, the high life uh, on their student loans. Um, one of the things you, you, you mentioned in that is that certain groups of people are um, sort of uh, more likely, more open to, or just, or just generally being exploited. So you talk a little bit more about um, you know, who you think sort of suffers the most because of the investment imperative. Yeah, I mean, I think when we look at student debt, the way that I talk to my students about um, the magnitude of, of student debt issues, the crisis as it as it is often called, um, is that, you know, it's almost 45 million Americans hold student debt and it's $1.5 trillion of our economy. So it cuts across um, all sorts of demographic groups, but that it's naive to think that it equally applies across groups and that um, individuals are equally burdened across groups. So um, certain um, demographic groups are disproportionately burdened both by the effects of student debt. So like women hold two thirds of the student debt dollars, even though they make up only 57 or 56% of college students. Um, Students of color disproportionately hold debt and default on debt. Um, LGBTQ um, individuals report higher levels of debt and we go on and on older Americans. Right. And so um, those things are deeply connected to other institutional problems in our economy that have to do with the labor market and access to good K through 12 education. Um, And so we do see that um, student debt itself kind of burdens um, vulnerable or communities disproportionately. And then with respect to the actual investment imperative, I mean, I'll give one example, which is um, for-profit colleges, um, which have been in the news for, uh, for the most part, having predatory recruitment practices and and not necessarily giving students um, quality education instruction. Um, And there are, I think, I don't remember the statistics off the top of my head, but um, very much disproportionately attended by African-Americans, by women, by parents, by older students. And when we see, you know, almost 50 percent of people who graduate from a for-profit institution default on their debt, and then you see who is kind of disproportionately attending those institutions, you see this connection about where the burden lies. So that's one example. It's not the only one. Absolutely. I I feel like a lot of the um, proponents of uh, for-profit educations that I interact with largely on uh, Twitter um, often talk about sort of uh, access that that these schools are offering – um, opportunity and access for uh, for non traditional students, for students who are less likely to get in other places, uh, and therefore that uh, they're, they're serving sort of a, a need. Um, and I recognize that in, in your paper, um, you talk about the investment imperative and, and sort of um, as a descriptive matter um, rather than taking a normative position. But I was curious if you had thoughts on, you know, if if increased access is a, um, a good thing, uh, but we recognize that not every student will enjoy the median wage surplus from going to college, 
you have thoughts on how we might protect the, um, the, the you know, the, for lack of a better word, the sort of the, the people who lose out here, uh, people who don't benefit from uh, going to college? Um, how can we sort of um, support those folks who, um, who make a bet on their um, human capital investment and, uh, and don't succeed? Yeah. So I don't come out in the paper and say, you know, I think the investment imperative is a good thing or a bad thing. I think that the descriptive work that, that my data did um, and that I was, I was able to draw from the unique data that I had can gave um, enough for me to work with without coming to that normative conclusion. But I am a proponent of access to higher education, especially um, for individuals who are first generation, you know, who maybe need a little bit of extra support in accessing higher education. Um, but it is true then that uh, folks who are um, who need that extra support accessing higher education might be more vulnerable to these kind of effects of the investment imperative. And so um, I think that we should go back to thinking about higher education as a public good. Um, I'd love to see more state investment in higher ed. I'd love to see federal investment in higher ed. Um, I'd love to see more need-based uh, scholarships rather than merit-based scholarships, uh, you know, infusion into Pell Grants, um, things like that that would support people um, in accessing higher education, kind of recognizing that the financial return on education First of all, it's hard to measure over a lifetime. Um, that is not the only reason why we should value higher education. I mean, the notions of higher education as a, a way to um, increase democratic values and exchange ideas and introduce people to new concepts and folks that they've never um, met before. So I think that we should be supporting all of that, especially in our changing economy. I think. Um, the ability to be adaptable other than have a particular skill is probably going to be helpful in our changing economy. Um, so I'd like to see just further investment in higher education so that people don't have to shoulder the risk, the financial risk, all on their own. And then on top of that, I think we need careful regulation of institutions who are getting our federal student loan dollars. They should have to meet certain requirements. I'm, a, I'm um, in support of something like the gainful employment rule. So I think there's a lot that we can do in supervision and oversight um, that can make it easier um, for folks to access education without taking on the full kind of financial risk all by themselves, because it's a benefit to society generally. Thank you. Yeah, that was really a, sort of an interesting source of the discussion in my class today about ways that we could either uh, decrease financial uh, cost to students uh, such that they have a better return on investment or to, you know, increase uh, institutional um, quality or sort of eliminate some of the sort of uh, lower um, schools that provide sort of uh, less of a return and not, as you say, not just on sort of um, on a dollar basis, such that students get more of what they expect to receive. In reaction to your earlier question about access um, in terms of online access and um, alternate schedules and things like that, I mean, I think that we do have to think about how we um, let people participate in higher education and that those different kind of um, 
access points are really important, but I also think that um, our community colleges are doing a great job. Our HBCUs are doing a great job. I think there's institutions in place whose mission it is to um, create access for people in higher education, and then we don't have to rely on institutions where the incentives might be off. I certainly hear what you're saying. Some of the data I see about community colleges, though, suggests that um, certainly while they are much, much cheaper, uh, that some of that outcomes for students uh, are not especially strong, that lots of students attend community college for uh, for a short time and then leave. Um, and my understanding is that uh, students who attend college for a time and leave without any sort of credential at all are some of the students who are worst off in terms of their outcomes because uh, they're you know now further in debt, um, non-dischargeable debt or hard to discharge debt without um, any sort of corresponding bump in income. Yes, and I think that's true. But if you look at the cost of community colleges, um, the debt burden is just not nearly as high as somebody who goes to um, a four-year proprietary institution and pays a lot more, you know, takes a lot more debt and isn't necessarily any better off than if they hadn't gone to college at all. I mean, that's what some of the research is showing. Absolutely. Yeah, I understand that. Um, so one of the things that um, you, you talked about is sort of uh, responses from interviews with former students who often referred themselves as being too young and dumb to make an, uh, good investment decisions about college. Uh, I was curious whether you thought there were sort of effective ways to provide more guidance for students uh, and whether this was this language they used about themselves being young and dumb um, made me think whether this advice was the same for high school students as it was for um, sort of uh, you know adult learners, returning students. I'm not quite sure what the nomenclature is. Um, yeah, so this young and dumb language came up on more than one occasion, and the two researchers who did these interviews really were struck by it because it seemed to be thematic. Um, as I was kind of reflecting on that, I think that there's a there's a couple of things that are important to recognize about that concept of being young and dumb or feeling young and dumb. I think that is um, an indication of the internalization of the investment imperative, right? That saying that I is this is a, a private good and it's my responsibility to have known everything and to have gone to the right place. And if I'm not getting the services that I need in repayment. One of the um, borrowers was talking about if he got a glitch in his public service loan forgiveness, he wouldn't seek help because, well, that was on him, right? And that is um, a, a, a an internalization of the investment imperative as a, a higher education as a private good. Um, and also the kind of shame that we see in this and the student debt cascade. And so I think that that notion of being young and dumb, we should interrogate um, before thinking that the answer is more information, because I think that we need to, we, we might need to rethink some of our kind of structural systemic things to make sure that people aren't in the situation of feeling young and dumb um, because they made some decisions about higher ed based on this imperative to go to college at all costs without regulations and oversight from our government. So that's kind of one thing. In terms of um, is there information that we can get to people, one thing that we talked about a lot in the wake of the interviews was that information was not sticky at all if it came from 
the CFPB website, which I find to be really useful, actually, tool myself as an advocate. Um, but um, it was useful when it came from a trusted source. And so there seems to be some potential, and I'd like to do some more research on this, but some potential for um, college access programs that are already in place, like Gear Up and Trio and some of these college prep um, programs, especially for first-generation students, that maybe could we could kind of tap into those resources and those relationships that already exist as a means of providing information about debt financing your higher education. Um, and so I think that's something interesting that's worth researching. Um, and then the question, I guess, about is it different for high school students um, and adult learners? I think it must be, right? Um, the, the notion of people taking on all this debt at 17 um, is certainly true for high school students. And there's not necessarily, it's the fir their first time entrance into this market. Um, they've never done this before. And if they have no help from family or from friends, then they're particularly um, kind of behind the ball. But I don't know that adult learners that are returning to school are in a much better circumstance. You know, um, in my class, we talk about how um, people take on student debt, you know, once or twice in their lifetime, but the institutions and the lenders are repeat players. There's a, there's a serious power and information um, imbalance in this relationship. Um, and I think that's true for both high school students who are entering college straight from school and adult learners who are returning to higher ed. Thanks. I think it was a really interesting point about these, um, sort of pipeline programs. Um, you know, I feel like a, a recurring um, sentiment expressed by my students today was that their um, high school guidance counselors were often not helpful sources of information um, and that they had sort of a, a shtick to, you know, go to state school uh, or, or something else, uh, but that were not sort of particularly attuned to the, uh, the desires of these individual students or um, they were not, as you suggested, a trusted source of information. And so, uh, exploiting that um, seems like a um, potentially a, a useful path forward. Um, so um, I have some other questions, but I was curious uh, whether um, we've we covered a lot of them. I was curious whether there were thoughts that you had uh, about things about the paper that uh, you want to make sure that you get uh, you get across. Um, I mean, I don't think there's anything in particular except. Um, to say that I'm really interested in legal scholarship that is um, interdisciplinary. And I learned a lot from other scholars who have done this, Sarah Green and Pamela Fui and some other folks. Um, so I'm, I'm finding that kind of legal scholarship really interesting to do myself um, and think that there's, there's an important intersection that we have to create here. One thing that I noticed in the interviews with student borrowers and also in my clinic is that people do not think about student debt as a legal issue, even though this is governed by laws and regulations and rights and remedies. Um, people who are struggling with student debt see it as a financial issue or a 
personal issue and don't think about it as a legal issue. And I think that lawyers need to get involved, both advocates and scholars, to get involved in this conversation and be conversing with the other academics and advocates out there that are working on this so that we can make those connections because people do have legal rights and remedies under these systems. Um, but if they don't want to or don't feel like they can access legal services, then there's no way to take advantage of those rights under the law. I think it's a, it's a great point. Uh, and that's uh, why I think I'm grateful that I'll be seeing you uh, at the forthcoming um, uh, student loan law conference at, uh, at Irvine, uh, the Student Borrower Protection Center, sort of bringing together people to think about some of these issues and how to help students. Um, is there, um, so I wanted to ask, I, I understood that, um, you have a big new project that's related to this article. And I was wondering if you might, um, sort of, you know, sort of wind down the interview by telling us about this new project. Yeah, sure. I've got two student debt projects in the works, um, one with Jonathan Glayer at UCI. So we, we'll talk about that maybe at the conference. Um, but I think what you're referencing is um, I am just starting to undertake a um, research project to investigate um, kind of whether and how attitudes about debt and specifically debt aversion are acting as a barrier to college completion for Latino students. So the statistics show that there's been a great increase in um, matriculation for Latino students over the last five years or 10 years, um, but there's still a pretty big completion gap between Latino students and non-Latino students. And um, there's been a lot of um, social science research that's been done on why that is and what are the kind of correlation factors, um, but nobody's really looked at the role of debt and attitudes about debt um, standing alone or how they intersect with um, these other factors that affect completion. So um, as you mentioned earlier, it's really um, problematic for people who take out debt and start college and don't complete. And so that's the group that we're going to focus on. And we're going to do a um, survey and then follow up interviews. And so there's a, there's a lot come on that and some law review articles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, well, that's great. I look forward to um, to reading about those things and hearing more about your project with uh, with Jonathan as well. So, uh, yeah, and I should also say before um, I go that that project is in in conjunction with Unidos US and um, the UNC Center for Community Capital. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for uh, for joining me to talk about your article, um, and I will uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Okay. Thank you so much. Maybe it's so, but my baby's kiss is what I want more.
Nothing I claim, nothing I claim, it's gonna matter the same. 